from a distance there is harmony and it echoes through the land and it is hope of hopes and it is love of loves it's the heart of every man sings bet Miller. we here at solutions of balance also see harmony and we also see hope as does our guest today mel duncan folks you are listening to solutions of balance and we are so glad you're joining us on forward radio wfmp 106.5 fm here in Louisville. solutions of balance is a program of and sponsored by forward radio following as part of WFMT's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can contact us by sending us an email to solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Mel Duncan. Mel Duncan is the founding director of AOF Nonviolent Peace Force, and that is in the United States a world leader in unarmed civilian protection. NP's nonviolent civilian protectors provide direct protection to civilians caught in violent conflict and work with local groups to prevent further violence in a variety of conflict areas, including South Sudan, Iraq, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Ukraine, and Myanmar. Mel has represented the NP at the United Nations, where the group has been granted consultative status. Recent UN Global Reviews as the Security Council and General Assembly resolutions have cited and recommended unarmed civilian protection. The Presbyterian Peace Fellowship honored Mel with their 2010 Peace Seeker Award. The Fellowship of Reconciliation USA awarded him the 2007 FIFA International Peace Prize on behalf of nonviolent peace forces' courageous efforts in conflict regions around the world. The Utney Reader named Mel as one of the 50 visionaries who are changing world. The American Friends Service Committee nominated nonviolent peace force for 2016 Nobel Peace Prize. In 2018, Nonviolent Peace Force received the Luxembourg Peace Prize. Mel is a graduate of McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. In 2006, he was honored with their Distinguished Citizen Award. He and his wife, Georgia Heller Duncan, have eight children and 14 grandchildren. Welcome again, Mel Duncan. Thank you, Jamie. It's good to be with you. Good to have you. We want to know everything you can tell us about your efforts with the organization Nonviolent Peace Force. You co-founded, by the way, but tell us about the origins of your path in peace work and how you decided this is a profession for you. Well, it really is more than a profession. It's a calling and it's uh, very significant that we're doing this interview this week because this is our 20th anniversary. It was 20 years ago this week when 150 of us gathered outside of New Delhi in India. We came from 49 countries and we officially began Nonviolent Peace Force. And many of us had come there with experiences working internationally and locally in providing nonviolent protection and conflict resolution in many parts of the world. And we came together with a shared vision and decided that we would bring our experiences, our hope, our spirits, our resources together, and at that time form Nonviolent Peace Force. And it was so significant that at the end of that event, our founding event 20 years ago right now, Ila Gandhi, who was one of the delegates from South Africa, I led us to the area where her grandfather had been assassinated. 
Mohandas Gandhi was working on the Shanti Sena, which is Sanskrit for peace army, when he was assassinated. And at that site where he was killed, there are cement footsteps leading across the lawn to the place where he was assassinated. So all 150 of us walked in those footsteps, stopped at the, the small modest monument where he was martyred, paid our respects, and then spontaneously fanned out on the lawn and started offering songs and prayers in our respective languages. So there was this brilliant cacophony. And then Ela stepped forward and started reading from the Mahatma's works and ended by saying, my grandfather would be very happy today. And so it was that legacy that we carried forward from India 20 years ago to really spread the vision of a large-scale, well-trained, professional, nonviolent peace force. So this has been a calling really for me since I was a teenager, since I started working on peace and justice work uh, in the civil rights movement. I also, in terms of resisting the draft and the war in Vietnam, and then moving on and organizing really throughout my life in the 1980s, I got a glimpse of what this work was meant to be when I was part of the international brigadistas who went to Nicaragua and uh, worked on the northern border doing uh, cotton harvesting during the Contra War. And what we found was when there were delegations, primarily from uh, North America, who were in the villages along the northern border, the Contras did not attack. And of course, as we found out a few years later during the Iran-Contra hearings, they didn't attack because that, that war was being orchestrated by the US CIA out of the embassy in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. And of course, the CIA did not want people like me to be injured or hurt because of the publicity. Now, they could kill thousands of Nicaraguans, but they did not want someone like me hurt. Over a seven-year period, delegations through the International Brigadistas and Witness for Peace and other groups, I shuttled in and out of those villages on the northern border. No one was ever killed while there were those international presences. So that got me thinking about this whole idea of what it would look like if we could organize, if we could train people, if we could have people stay for extended periods of time. And then life happened. Georgia and I raised a family and I worked. Then in the late 90s, I had an opportunity to go on a sojourn where I was confronted by a, a Sufi very early in that journey. And she confronted me about the dualistic way that I organized, that I worked, us versus them, right versus wrong, good versus evil. And she challenged me to start seeing my work and indeed the world from a place of unity. And that led me to places I never dreamed, including to start studying this Vietnamese monk whom I never heard of, a fellow by the name of Thich Nhat Hanh. That led me to Plum Village, Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery in southern France, where I stayed. And during that time, Thich Nhat Hanh, this was in 1998, challenged us that we were no longer in a place and time in history where we could afford to take sides, that the stakes for all sentient beings were too high. So it was upon leaving Plum Village, riding on a bus, where I received this vision of a nonviolent peace force. So I took that idea to a conference in The Hague the following year, The Hague Appeal for Peace. And there 
I grabbed a fellow by the name of David Hartso, a, a, a lifelong Quaker who shared the same vision. And we started pulling together people who also shared that vision or similar visions. And what we found was this was a recurrent vision that had occurred and recurred to many people throughout the ages. And so we were able to hold the focus for people to come together and work together and to form Nonviolent Peace Force. Well, Mel, Jim and I had no idea when we began our broadcasting of Solutions to Violence that we would encounter and, and interview so many peace activists and organizations. So we're very happy to have you join us today and, and tell us about Peace Force. But we'll get into a nonviolent Peace Force eventually. First, give our listeners a, a sense of NP's mission. Well, we provide trained unarmed civilian protectors who are invited by local civil society in areas of violent conflict, provide direct protection for civilians who are caught up in violent conflict. And the vast majority of people who are injured and killed by war today are civilians. And also to work with those civilians in those conflict areas, to support them in self-protection and to stand side by side with them in solidarity as they face that violence. And so we've done this in a variety of areas. Our first uh, place where we worked was in Sri Lanka. And since then, we've been in Guatemala. Our longest standing project has been in the Mindanao area of the Philippines, where they are now in the final stages of a peace process. We've been working there since 2007. Most notably, we were part of a civilian-based ceasefire process that led to a peace agreement that is being implemented right now. Our largest team, which is about 250 trained unarmed civilian protectors, is in South Sudan in 16 areas around that country. We also have teams working in Sudan in the Darfur area. We support local teams who are working in Burundi. We have been doing training with people in Nigeria and the Sahel region. We have a team in Iraq, another team that's uh, working in Myanmar, in Thailand, team that has just started in Aceh in Indonesia, a team that began a few months ago in Ukraine, and also a team that has been working in various parts of the United States. Okay, so Mel Duncan, you testified your testimony before the U.S. House Committee on Appropriations Subcommittee on State Foreign Operations in March 2019 explained that Nonviolent Peace Force is an organization concerned with unarmed civilian protection. You explained that, quote, unarmed civilian protection refers to a strategy for the protection of civilians, localized violence reduction, and supporting local peace infrastructures in which unarmed, trained civilian lives and work, civilians live and work in local civil society in areas of violent conflict, end quote. But even in the United Nations, whose mission is to reduce war, sometimes send in armed troops designated by blue helmets in order to stop the violence or prevent violence. How does an unarmed peace force diminish violence in a geopolitical region struggling with violent conflict? First of all, I have to correct you, Jim. The mission of the United Nations is not to reduce war. It is to end the scourge of war. Okay. And uh, we we have to hold them to that mission. It's not to reduce, it's to end war. And we can do that, that we can end war on this planet and we cannot lose sight of that mission. 
what we find is that unarmed civilian protectors can usually do the tasks of armed peacekeepers as well or better than armed peacekeepers. Hmm. And let me give you a couple of examples. In South Sudan, where I mentioned that we have about 250 unarmed civilian protectors. The UN has had a mission there for well over a decade. And right now, I think it's about 14,000 armed soldiers. Those soldiers are deployed throughout the country. One of the things that our teams have done over the years is in areas where people who have had to flee the violence and have come together in internally displaced camps, uh, and those camps, we worked in one camp, for example, where a hundred thousand people live and women have to leave those camps every day to collect firewood, to come back and cook. Routinely, those women are raped. They are raped by either government soldiers or rebel soldiers. Rape is a weapon of war, whether it's in South Sudan or Ukraine. We find that if three to five of our unarmed civilian protectors accompany 20 women who are going out to fetch firewood, and because of defoliation, they have to go further and further away from the camp to get this wood, uh, sometimes traveling as far as 10 or 15 kilometers into the bush, that if they're accompanied by our, our unarmed civilian protectors, they are not attacked. That has been 100% successful. Over the past seven years, we have tried to get the armed peacekeepers to do the same, to accompany women into the bush as they go after firewood. They have refused to do it, telling us that it is too dangerous for their armed peacekeepers to go places where our unarmed peacekeepers routinely go. And that's true because they represent much more of a target and much more of a threat when they're out there in all of their gear and their automatic weapons, as opposed to our people. Because our ability to protect is not based upon violence and threat of violence. It's based upon relationship and building relationship with all around us. So when we go out into the bush, we have built in advance relationships with all the conflicting parties, armed and unarmed, whether they represent the government or rebel groups. They don't have to like us. They don't have to agree with us, but we have to know how to communicate with each other. They have to know who we are and why we're there. And with that grows some respect usually. And so we're able to accompany people where armed peacekeepers can't and will not go. If you look at other kinds of tasks that armed peacekeepers are usually given as a part of their mandate, it can include things like mediation, negotiation, monitoring, even peace building. Well, can you imagine if there were 14,000 people who were trained in peace building, in mediation, in reconciliation, working in, an air, in a war zone, as opposed to 14,000 armed peacekeepers who come from Ghana and Mongolia and India coming together, and they're trained as soldiers. So they do what soldiers do. So instead, why don't we directly train and send people who are skilled at unarmed peacekeeping, at reconciliation, at mediation, at peace building, and send them to war zones instead of bringing in more guns and more threats of violence. 
So we've been working with the UN to patiently try to teach them that there are more effective ways at doing peacekeeping and less expensive ways at doing peacekeeping that are more sustainable than bringing in more soldiers, more guns, more armed personnel carriers to places that are already extremely volatile. So, Mel Duncan, you also explained that, quote, currently over 70 non-governmental organizations are providing unarmed civilian protection in 24 areas across the world, including the Philippines, Myanmar, northern Iraq, southern Sudan, Sudan, Guatemala, Colombia, Ukraine, Greece, Germany, U.S., Burundi, Indonesia, Canada, Mexico, Thailand, end quote. How is it possible? For a nonviolent NGO, unarmed organization like Nonviolent Peace Force to exist in a country like Ukraine, where there is active and active and ongoing war that threats of weapons of mass destruction. How does an organization like Nonviolent Peace Force protect its members in a war zone that involves weapons of mass destruction? Well, first of all, we exist very humbly and based upon building relationships with local people who have to live there and building solidarity with them and learning from them what it is that they need. Just last week, we have a a team right now of 25 people who are working in Ukraine. They started there in April. They are based in Odessa. We had an assessment team that was in Kherson last week, an area that the Russians uh, recently retreated from. And they found a number of things that people are in need of and things that we could be able to do. For example, the local government is hoping to uh, evacuate at least 100 people a day from there who need to get out now for various reasons, either medical, psychosocial, or just plain social reasons. And people need protective presence as they evacuate. They need to understand accessibility and routes to move to the West. And so we can assist them in doing that. We also monitor and do situational awareness daily because we don't do this to become martyrs ourselves. That's not a very sustainable practice. We do this because this is an effective way to protect civilians and to help bring about peace. And so we will monitor the situation. And if it becomes too dangerous, there have been times when we've had to withdraw our teams. Now, that's been very few in the 19 years that we've been fielding teams, but there have been a few times when we've had to do that. But we always work closely with local people on the ground. And so what we heard from people in Kursan last week were the, the need to for assistance with evacuation, the need for distribution of humanitarian aid. As many of us have been reading, there's no heat, no lights. Winter has begun. People gather in heating stations that are like tents where they can get warm for a, a little bit and charge their phones and then have to leave. They're concerned about people coming together in one place because there's still Russian artillery that's coming in. So there needs to be a decentralized distribution of humanitarian aid. And so as civilian protectors who have experience doing that in a variety of places around the world, we can help them to decentralize this distribution of aid so that it's spread out so people don't have to conglomerate 
so that it gets out to areas outside of the main city, areas that aren't served, that there can be that fair distribution. And one of the things, Jim, that our teams are finding is that since late February, there has been this tremendous coming forth of local people who were doing all kinds of things, were mechanics and accountants and teachers who have stepped forward and done the kind of work that needs to be done in terms of humanitarian assistance and psychosocial support, what needs to be done. And they know their own communities. And so it's our job to support them. Lots of them are really, as you can imagine, beyond exhausted and are traumatized themselves. So to provide them with the support that they need so they can continue this work and not be swallowed up by the big international aid groups that come in and can say, okay, we've got it, we can take over now. Because it really is, are the local people who know what to do, how to do it, and have sacrificed literally everything to keep their communities alive in places like Kherson that were occupied by the Russians until very recently. And so we can help support them in terms of that localized infrastructure. We can also accompany the people who need to get in, in there to help, the, the mental health workers, because there's a tremendous amount of trauma that's taken place in the last few months. Also providing protection for people who have been, there's a, a, a lot of sexual and gender-based violence that's gone on and support for women, both to protect them so that doesn't continue to happen and to step forward and to seek out the help that they need uh, and not be stigmatized by that. Also in terms of children, our teams last week were finding children as heads of households now and to provide them with the support that's needed so that, that they aren't just gobbled up in all of this, but they get the protection that they need. So those, those needs are, are there they don't need more people with guns to come in and do these kinds of tasks. At the same time, we're keeping an eye on what's happening in terms of the front. We do assume a certain amount of risk. As I said, there are still daily shellings that are going on. We do set up early warning, early response kinds of mechanisms. So as to uh, assess what are the precursors of attacks and to try to be as aware as we can and to seek shelter and to find that shelter and, and to work in solidarity with people who are already doing those kinds of things. And we also accept that there is a certain amount of risk in the work that we do. David Harso, co-founder of Nonviolent Peace Force, was involved in many nonviolent actions, including lunch counter sit-ins, demonstrations against Vietnam War, and trained civilians in Kosovo in nonviolent strategies during the 1990s. While the two of you were both involved in Central America in the, in the 1980s, you and David did not meet until May of 1999 at the Hague Appeal for Peace. In 1984, you were part of the International Brigadistas who picked up coffee along the north border of Nicaragua, living in villages that were targeted by the Contra. In the 1999 Hague Appeal for Peace, each of you were seeking support to make each of those visions possible. Tell us about the coffee and cotton brigades and why did the two of you get involved with them? Well, I can tell you why I did. I 
had studied in Costa Rica when I was in college and had become very impressed. I had studied their their civil war of the late 40s, early 1950s, and became very impressed with a couple of things. First of all, that the victor of the uh, civil war abolished the army. And to this day, 70 years later, Costa Rica still does not have an army. Secondly, they invested those funds into widespread public education. So if you compare the literacy rates of Costa Rica with any place else in the, in the region, it is much higher. Uh, you compare the standard of living, it's much higher. Thirdly, Jose Figueres, who was a leader of the group that won that civil war, limited the presidency to one consecutive term. So you didn't have these dictatorships that you saw in places like Zimbabwe and tragically in places, I'm sad to say, like Nicaragua with Daniel Ortega now. But Figueres was president for one five-year term and then he had to leave office. Now he could run again, but he had to be out for five years. So he ran again in the 60s. And so you didn't have this consolidation of power that leads to authoritarianism. And so it was those kinds of things that impressed me. And then I got a chance to see Nicaragua at that time and see what it was like under the dictator Somoza. And walking across the border was night and day. And so when the Sandinista revolution began in the late 1970s, I was very, very interested in seeing what could happen. I also, at that time, was organizing in the disability rights community in the United States. And we were using organizing principles from Paulo Freire from Brazil, who wrote a, a seminal book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And Freire was using literacy for liberation. And I saw that after the Sandinistas won in 1979, they started using those same Freirean literacy approaches. And so that caught my interest. So I started following what they were doing and became quite excited with that approach. And then when I started seeing that when President Reagan became president, that there were all of a sudden these attacks and these attacks that seemed very well orchestrated during the cotton and coffee harvest, that there was what appeared to be what we later called a low intensity war. And then a group of us started saying, this looks like a CIA operation. We, we didn't know it at the time, but we, we thought, yeah, it looks like it. So we further speculated that if some of us started to go down and stay in those villages, that the CIA would be hesitant to send what became known as the Contra to attack those villages. It was the only time in my life where I was happy that the CIA knew where I was. Because indeed, they did not send any of the Contras to places where we were. And so that impressed upon us, of course, the need for um, that kind of protection against our own government, but also the need to come back and to work against those policies in what became known as, as the Pledge of Resistance. So, Mel, the Escalatus Nicaraguan Peace Agreement, also known as the Central American Peace Accords, signed in Guatemalan City by President Benisco Cerezo of Guatemala, President Jose Napoleon Dorte of El Salvador, President Daniel Ortega of Nicaragua, President Jose Azona del Hoyo of Honduras, and of course, President Oscar Eros Sanchez of Costa Rica. 
on August the 7th, 1987, ended the Contra War in Nicaragua and laid the groundwork for ending the 36-year-long civil war in Guatemala. Was the coffee and cotton brigade involved in actions and events that led to the Escalades Accords? In those days, the Reagan administration supported the Contra counter-revolution in Nicaragua, as you pointed out. Eisenhower, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Reagan supported Guatemalan dictators and the kind of revolution that led to the Guatemalan Civil War. Were you and David Hartsoe involved in the U.S. pledge resistance? I think you said you were. And other organizations that opposed U.S. intervention in Central America? Why? Well, first of all, let me say it went further back than Eisenhower. FDR said of the elder Somoza, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch the dictator of Nicaragua. And it went way beyond that in terms of the occupation of the Marines in Nicaragua in the uh, 1920s and in overthrowing the nascent democracy movement led by Sandino, hence the, the name of the Sandinistas. And so there was a long history of dominating and controlling Central America and the hemisphere that really goes back to the Monroe Doctrine the sense that we own the hemisphere. And so the resistance in the United States to that policy played a major role in ending Contra Aid. And the Pledge of Resistance was central to that. I live in Minnesota, and during that time, our Senator, David Durenberger, chaired the Select Committee on Intelligence, which funded the CIA. And so we were in a very key position and we met with Senator Durenberger often. He was open to talking with us, and we would talk to him about our experiences, what we were seeing in Nicaragua. Many of us, Augsburg College, the uh, college in Minneapolis, was routinely arranging tours and sending people to Nicaragua, to Guatemala, to El Salvador. They would come back. They were meeting with Senator Durenberger. He would patiently listen and engage in dialogue and then go right back to Washington, fund the CIA and vote for the Contras. So finally, in June of 1986, a group of us occupied his office after yet another vote for Contra aid. And so there were 42 of us who were arrested. We were put on trial. Four of us represented the group. We had a judge who allowed, had a very liberal rule of evidence and allowed us to introduce all kinds of information about the Contra War and to, uh, it was a very public trial to put that before the public. In the end, we were allowed to put into jury instructions, necessity defense rules. And so the prosecutor finally, who the prosecutor had no sense of humor, got uh, angry and at the end, before it went to the jury, dismissed all charges, yelling at the judge that he could not get a conviction based upon those jury instructions. So after that, shortly after that, one of my friends who I'd been in Nicaragua with was one of the four veterans who took part in the Veterans Fast for Life. These were three Vietnam vets, and my friend Duncan Murphy was a vet of World War II. He had driven ambulances on the front in Europe and had liberated one of the concentration camps. They were fasting on the steps of the Capitol, and at one point said that they would fast to death against Contra Aid. And I went out after they had fasted for 30 days to join them, not in the fast, but to be honest, to try to talk them into stopping. I didn't want my friend Duncan to die. And that, that was hard because I, at least one of the four was 
permitted to die. And each afternoon they would stop on the steps of the Capitol or stay on the steps of the Capitol. And sometimes it would be 10 people. Sometimes it would be 50 people. Sometimes it would be a celebration. Sometimes it would be quiet like a Quaker meeting. And one afternoon we were joined in hands praying. And I looked over and walking across the parking lot was this tall figure with an aide. And I remember the first thing I thought was, I don't believe this much. But sure enough, it was Dave Durenberger. So I left the circle and walked over to him. And he was startled to see me because I'm sure he thought, what, what could be going on in my office at this moment if this guy's here? And he said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here with my friends who are fasting. And then I said, I hadn't planned this, but I said, would you join us? And he said, for what reason? And I said, just to join in the spirit. And he walked over and he joined in the circle and took hands and prayed. He had a very devout Catholic background. He grew up on the campus of St. John's University in, in northern Minnesota, a Benedictine campus. And after that, there was a, a researcher there from the Christic Institute that was a activist legal group that had done a lot of research into not only Iran-Contra, but in a much deeper scandal of clandestine funding of covert operations through drug and arms smuggling. And this researcher, Bill Davis, who was a Jesuit priest, took Senator Durenberger aside and talked with him. And I remember looking over, I can see it to this day, looking over and seeing Bill Davis and Durenberger talking. Durenberger never voted for Contra Aid again. And he initiated hearings on Contra Aid, the first hearings on Iran-Contra. And so these things matter. You may be out there in front of the post office or in front of the federal building in Louisville or wherever, and it's cold and people are driving by and giving you the finger. You never know what matters, but they do. They add up and they matter. And the people being arrested throughout the country, there were thousands of people who took action during the Pledge of Resistance. And that mounted up. It didn't happen fast enough, but it did end Contra Aid. Yeah, I have a similar story. I was very much involved in the pledge of resistance in those days. And yeah, we went to trial uh, led by the legal aid director, Dennis Bricking, and Paul Sorf, attorney, Father Tim Flynn, Presbyterian minister, George Edwards. It was a phenomenal trial, but uh, yeah, we've got other questions to get to here. So, Jamie, your turn. Well, again, you, you founded Nonviolence Peace Force with uh, your friend, David Hartsoe. However, new generation of leaders are now in charge of, of MP. You, you have chosen semi-retirement, focusing on helping to capture the good practices. You work with many are to protect uh, civilians and, and prevent violence and to build a community of practice that goes far beyond MP or any one UCP organization. What are the rewards for you in this new position of semi-retirement? I think the biggest reward, I would say two, Jamie. Number one, are seeing not only the next generation of leaders who have come along and taken up this work, because now they're firmly entrenched as the executive director and as the program director and as the heads of our missions throughout the world. But seeing now the second generation coming along and so seeing that sustainability 
and seeing that David and I and the other people who were there at the beginning, some of whom now are dead, and David and I are going to be dead pretty soon. But this work is going to continue on because there's the second and the third generation who are taking this vision far beyond where David and I envisioned and are continuing to co-create. And that was one of the things that David and I worked hard on was to always expand the circle and to invite people to bring their creative abilities and experience into that circle so that it didn't become dogmatic and static, that there were all kinds of experiences that could be added into this, that we could continue to expand that circle. And that brings to the other, to the second thing that brings me joy about that, this work. And that is, as you referred to earlier, Jamie, that there are at least 70 organizations in the world who do some form of nonviolent civilian protection. And I get that number from Selkirk College in Canada, who keeps a database on this. Now, some of those organizations are relatively large, like Nonviolent Peace Force, although we're, we're tiny compared to one UN peacekeeping mission, and there's like 15 UN peacekeeping missions right now, and we're tiny compared to one of them. If you add all of 70 of us up together, our people don't equal one UN peacekeeping mission, so we still have a long ways to go, but the number grows. And so there's groups like Nonviolent Peace Force, there's groups like Cure Violence that works specifically with gang intervention in places like Chicago, Baltimore, New York. There's people like groups like Peace Brigades International that really is the oldest among us. They started in the early 80s and they're active in places like Colombia and Mexico and Kenya. There's community peacemaking teams that used to be called Christian peacemaking teams. There's meta peace teams. There's a variety. There's also the neighborhood groups. For example, there's Mama Bear in Winnipeg that is made up of First Nation women who live in Winnipeg, who provide protection to First Nation women who come from the reserves into the city, and they provide accompaniment. There were neighborhood groups that sprang up in South Minneapolis. I'm sitting about three miles from where George Floyd was murdered, and neighborhood groups sprang up to do the kinds of civilian protection that was required after that murder and then during the uprisings and then during the influx of the white supremacy groups that, that were there within a day. And so the exciting thing that we're seeing, whether it be in South Minneapolis or South Sudan, that there are groups that are coming forward and are doing this kind of work, not because anybody's out there organizing this and saying, you know, being a puppet master, but because people are seeing the effectiveness and the need to do this work and are stepping up to do it. And that is something that I find exhilarating. The Nonviolence Peace Force has been vetted and honored by UN Economic and Social Council for with 54 members of uh, states. Nonviolent Peace Force in the US is only part of the story. You've mentioned uh, international uh, organizations. NP International is located in Geneva, Switzerland. What is the relationship of NP US to Nonviolent Peace Force International? And how do you differ in operation and, and, and focus? We're all part of the same cloth. We're all part of Nonviolent Peace Force. Our 
head offices in Geneva. And whether it be Nonviolent Peace Force US or Nonviolent Peace Force South Sudan or Nonviolent Peace Force Ukraine, we all are part of the same organization with our head office in Geneva. And so it's that overall entity that has the consultative status at the UN. And what that status gives us is, first of all, the ability to access different bodies at the UN. For example, we can attend Security Council meetings. We're part of a working group that routinely meets with ambassadors on the Security Council. We can attend different events and conferences. And it gives us a certain kind of, well, vetting that members of member states in the UN, for better or worse, know that we have gone through a process that, that's very rigorous. As you mentioned, there's 54 countries that are part of that Economic and Social Council. There's a non-governmental organization subcommittee that's made up of 19 countries that every four years reviews us. We have to answer questions to them for better or for worse. And so that we do have that certain kind of clearance with other member states that they know that, that we've gone through this process. And Jim, can I go back to one thing that you I forgot to bring up? You brought sure. up the Central America Peace Plan in one of your previous questions, and you mentioned Oscar Arias, the president of, of Costa Rica, who was one of the leaders of bringing that Central America peace process together in 1987, indeed was one of the recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize, yes. and is one of the 10 Nobel Peace Prize winners who have endorsed nonviolent peace force. I bring him up because he has put forth a armistice plan for Ukraine that's current right now. He's leading an effort, as he did in, in Central America in the late 80s, of calling on Ukraine and uh, Russia to in, uh, put forth first an armistice leading to a ceasefire, leading to a negotiated settlement. And so I pray that former President Arias has the same abilities and the, the same fortune that he had in the late 1980s now in uh, working with Ukraine and, and Russia. Okay, that's, that's excellent. Um, Nonviolence Peace Force does have a website. On it, there is an impact statement. The impact statement has to do with uh, reimagining security and civilian protection in areas most impacted by conflict by working alongside communities to interrupt and prevent violence. In what ways and in what areas are security and civilian protections put into practice? Well, in, in many of the areas that, that I talked about, we have demonstrated, as have other organizations who are doing similar work, that you don't need to deal with violence and to protect civilians by bringing in more violence. And that has been proved through quantitative analysis study after study through qualitative analysis, universities in various parts of the world independently are coming out and showing that this in fact is effective and does make a difference, can be done. I'll put us up to any kind of analysis head to head with any kind of armed peacekeeping in terms of impact and effect. And also when you look at here in the United States, I mentioned that the U.S. head office is in the Twin Cities, and 
shortly after the murder of George Floyd, we started working with a group that works with young men who have been in gangs in North Minneapolis, which is an area that is receives a lot of violence. And we started uh, talking with them, first of all, about the violence that they've encountered, that they deal with every day and the conditions they deal with. And then about ways that we've dealt with violence in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And they were pretty, let's say, openly skeptical, colorfully skeptical about what we were talking about. But we continued to engage. This was in uh, the fall of 2020. And we kept getting them invited back. They, we were invited to do one training, uh, a two-hour training, which really is kind of like a speaking engagement. You don't get much out of a two-hour training, but they kept inviting us back once a week. And it was a great encounter. I was one of the trainers. And the worst thing you can have when you're doing training is people who sit there and say nothing. These guys were the opposite of that. They were always engaged and didn't hesitate when they thought, when they thought that I was full of, of guff. And by the time of elections, they were ready uh, and had been trained enough to provide protection at the polls. Because in their area of Minneapolis, that was one of the areas that President Trump was targeting and was recruiting retired and off-duty police who were members of the same police union that was defending the murder of George Floyd to come in and make sure nothing bad was happening in the polls. This was an intimidation on the part of the president in a African-American community. So these young men, former gang members, provided protection at the polls in their communities, and there were no incidents. So from there, a Catholic school in the neighborhood started talking about that they needed security and they had to have the assessment done and recommendations came back for traditional kind of security, but they didn't want to do that. So they ended up hiring five of these brothers, uh, as they call themselves, full-time with benefits to provide unarmed security. When the Minneapolis school board decided that they would not renew their contract with the Minneapolis police, they turned to us to provide training for unarmed security people who are still there. They're no longer armed police in the Minneapolis schools. There are unarmed peacekeepers who we train who are in the Minneapolis schools. And we are now working with them on a five-year grant from the National Institute of Health to continue to provide training not only for the security specialists, but also for the high school young men and women, because security is also a community thing. It's not what's done to you. It's community working together. And so working with the young people in being part of their own security in high schools. And so we hope that this will be a model of unarmed security in high schools, as opposed to in many high schools in urban areas around this country, there's armed police. And it's, it's a kind of imposition. And instead, we can have a totally new approach to security. So Mel Duncan, quote, in the case of the January 6th insurrection, what strategy could the organization Nonviolence Peace Force have used that would have interrupted the systemic violence and would that interruption have then resulted in a sustained change? What kind of change could we have expected to occur by interrupting the violence that led to the January 6th insurrection? You know, the kind of work we do 
can't come in at a flashpoint at the end. We really have to start working longer term. So if we were there working in advance with communities in advance of that, let's say six months in advance with communities in Washington, with the security forces that were there, with the armed groups, it's our business to be able to be in communication with all of the armed actors, whether they be state or non-state. There might have been things that we could have done in terms of prevention, in terms of communication, in terms of providing some type of interpositioning that would be unarmed. As unarmed people, we would not have presented the threat or the challenge that armed people present. But Jim, I can't go farther than that because we can't speculate. Unless we were there and doing a deep analysis and have worked with people on the ground and the communities that were there, we would have had to have been invited and been working months in advance to deal with a situation like that. Fair enough. Uh, Nonviolence Peace Force organizes and encourages locals to create systems for delivering needs. Uh, how is organizing those locals done with my, uh, my Peace Force? And uh, what are the effective strategies that, that you use? I think a good example of that is in Burundi. There was a tremendous amount of violence in 2015 after the presidential election, and that resulted in tens of thousands of people fleeing. After that period, it, it was a very closed society. Internationals really could not get in to Burundi. And the few that got in, if we were seen with local activists, we would put those activists in danger. And so the people who were contacting us and saying we need to do something in anticipation of the 2020 elections, we started being contacted in 2018, we looked at ways that we could provide them with training to bring them out of the country. So for example, we brought a delegation to South Sudan and they toured and saw the ways that the work was being done in South Sudan. And then we offered them training in, um, in the capital city in Juba. We gave them training and then worked with them on grant writing and then followed up training and they did training of trainers and so by the time that the elections came in May of 2020, they had set up local civilian protection teams in the five areas that had experienced the most violence in 2015. And they played a role, not the only role, because there's always multiple factors that affect things, but they played an important role on keeping down the amount of violence and reducing that significantly from 2015. Since then, they have been doing further training. They just did one last week and they continue to train people on their own. We provide assistance. We do online training with them. We meet with them and coach the leaders. Right now, it's just on a monthly basis, but they're doing it themselves. And that really is the most sustainable way for this work to be done. And it, it really came from the fact that we couldn't get in the country in the first place because it was so tightly controlled during that 2018-2019 period. So we had to invent other ways and people stepped forward and really courageously did the work and did it very effectively. So Mel Duncan, the international journalists, international journalists like 
Anatole Levin, Chris Hedges. We've talked about uh, Ukraine before, Ukraine-Russian conflict. So uh, the international journalists like Anatole Levin, Chris Hedges, and others believe that the only way to end the Russian-Ukrainian crisis is through international negotiations. Does nonviolent peace force advocate for negotiated settlement? What would those negotiations look like? Wars always end with negotiations. It's just a matter of when and how many people have to die before the negotiations take place. I've already mentioned the armistice proposal that President Arias of Costa Rica and other people are promoting right now. Clearly, we support any kind of reduction of violence and are in other areas, like in Mindanao in the Philippines, played a central role in implementing a ceasefire that actually took place over a four-year period. And I worked with people on the local level to monitor, verify, intervene, and report any threats to civilians over a four-year period. And that ceasefire held, for the most part, there were a couple of incidents, but not very many. And that led to a negotiated settlement and an agreement between the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and the Philippine government in uh, 2014. That settlement led to an agreement that is being implemented right now. And so we've seen this happen. It can go from an armistice to a ceasefire, to a negotiated settlement, to an implementation. And so we've seen this happen. And there has to be negotiations. We would advocate that that the fighting stop at this moment and that we proceed towards a ceasefire and then a negotiated settlement. Mel, there is so much more we would like to discuss with you. Nonviolence Peace Force does have a website where our listeners can access more information. What final thoughts would you like to share with our, our listeners? That we can and are creating a new and better world amidst all of the news that we get about the chaos and the violence, there are new ways that are emerging and to keep our eyes on that and our energy and to keep building those alternatives. We can't turn away from the violence and oppression, but at the same time, not to be consumed by it. To create those alternatives that are real and tangible and keep pointing out that there are new and better ways. And indeed there are. And Nonviolent Peace Force is one of those ways. So come to our website. We need your support. Frankly, we need your money. To continue this work, we need donations from people every day. And so I'm unabashed about asking people for their support. Friends, we are out of time. Our guest today has been Mel Duncan, director of the organization Nonviolent Peace Force. I should say, Retired, <laughs> retired director. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Mel Duncan will be repeated Tuesday, December 6th at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, December 7th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. We will place the Solutions to Violence program featuring Mel Duncan in our archives on Wednesday, December 7th. To listen to this and other programs, go to forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions of Violence program that features Mel Duncan. For more information and a schedule of programming that will inspire and challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule.
We are your hosts, Jamie McMillan and Jim Johnson, along with our technical engineer, Carolyn Brooks Johnson, bringing you more discoveries of solutions to violence. Thank you for listening.